0: You're listening to Meet the RIA. In this special podcast edition of the show, you'll get expert insight from some of the top registered investment advisors in the country. Our first guest is Jason Jackman, President and Chief Investment Officer at Johnson Investment Council. Next, you'll hear from Julian Andrews, Senior Director and Senior Wealth Advisor at Mercer Advisors. And finally, Joe McCaffrey, Chief Investment Officer at Salem Investment Counselors. Here's your host, Janet Dagenhart.
1: Have a special REA roundtable reflecting on the first half of the year, ESG, technology, M&A, and a host of other industry trends. Everyone, great to have you here. And I want to start with inflation. We've been hearing a lot about inflation, including today at this summit. How high will it go, and how long will it stay? And why? What's the impact on financial assets?
2: Really been a focal point of the markets this year, uh, with with really a dislocation between demand coming online very quickly but production taking some time to come on online as quickly. So you have a little bit of a mismatch here between demand and production. So we're of the mindset similar to the Fed that we believe the uh, inflationary pressures right now will be transitory and they'll eventually ebb and flow. And and we'll we'll see some of those disinflationary forces kick in. low population growth, demographic trends of an aging population and debt levels kind of temper long-term inflationary trends. So we think it'll roll over and, and not be as big of a focal point for the Fed and, and the markets over time.
3: And Jason, I would just agree with that completely. I, you know, the transitory versus permanent, we're on the transitory side of that as well. And, you know, it's tough on the bond market initially, but I think moving forward, just maintaining that diversified portfolio is, is really our, our mantra, always with clients.
0: Yeah, I would agree with Jason and Julie there. I, I think that uh, it, inflation is, is very difficult to, to understand. Uh, it, it, we had a lot of client questions about, is it here? And we know now that it's here. And so now the question is, how long will it stay and how high will it go? Uh, it's really hard to answer that question. And so uh, Julie nailed it. You have to stay diversified. Uh, you want to be uh, tethered to some um cyclical companies in your portfolio but at the same time you want to make sure you have some defensive companies and so uh, as always you know diversification is perhaps the only free lunch in investing and so you want to make sure you're you're having that lunch now that we do have inflation rearing its head and uh not quite certain how long it'll stay
2: one thing to keep an eye on, too, is just wage inflation. Uh, that That's a one indicator really keep an eye on on when this could transition from transitory to more permanent. So you have some anecdotal stories right now, some of which are pretty scary about signing bonuses and wage increases to keep employees. But we think when the labor market comes fully back online, you won't see that really carry through in a, in a pervasive way. But that's, that's one indicator we're really keeping a mindset on to know whether we need to build in more inflationary protection into the portfolios.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And another common debate we're hearing is that, you know, value versus growth. Is this the right way to frame investment opportunities or are there others that may be better? Well, yeah,
3: I'll just say on the value versus growth front, I mean, we have seen obviously growth has had its day for a long time. Historically, actually, uh, most people would be surprised that value has actually outperformed over long periods of time. But that has not been the case recently. Um, You know, we also look at other things. We look at small companies versus large companies, domestic versus foreign. That goes back to my original comment about being fully diversified. We started seeing a rotation in the value stocks earlier this year that has seemed to fade back a bit. So again, um, you know, it may seem like a broken record on this round table, but if you maintain that diversified portfolio, I think that that's really the best best approach. But there are a lot of other uh, ways, and you guys are both CIOs, you know, to look at portfolios and kind of break them down in different ways.
0: Yeah, I would just add, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to frame uh, your investment lens. And it's it's one of the most critical decisions you'll make uh, as an investor. And so, value versus growth is, is certainly useful to understand how much you're paying for various equities in your portfolio. Um, there are other ways to understand, uh, you know, what are the, the broad secular forces at work. What are the disruptive, uh, innovative technologies that may change certain industries, that may change consumer behavior? And uh, so you know, we, we'd like to take a thematic approach at Salem Investment Counselors where we're trying to identify those themes that are investable over long periods of time that, to Julie's point, are still diversified across company size, across geography, um, across different industries. So, so themes that cut across sectors that might persist uh, for some time that are, that are appropriate for the long-term investor.
2: I think given how long growth has outperformed as well, you're tempted to say this time is different and there won't be a reversion of the mean of the growth value valuation disparities. And we really just see that in extreme. It really hasn't been this extreme since uh, the late 90s, early 2000s with the tech bubble. Um, so uh, to Julie's point, don't know, we, we've seen some transition into value uh, late last year into this year. Don't know if that's going to continue in full force this year but eventually it will uh, we feel pretty confident that there'll be a period of value leadership for a period of time over the next five to ten years whether it happens in the next quarter or two is is very difficult to predict
1: mm-hmm. but yeah to, to julie's point you know if you're only invested in value or growth your returns could look very different than uh than the index so um moving now to meme stocks uh, we, we hear a lot about meme stocks uh, how have they impacted the market and your investment strategy if at all
2: hasn't influenced our philosophy at all we're a quality investor and 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 focus on on quality investments so these stocks tend to be uh pretty volatile in terms of of earnings or or even viability of a, of a business model right now uh, eventually fundamentals win the day uh in our mind and you can see momentum carry a stock for a period of time some herd momentum mentality some fear of missing out mentality uh, but eventually fundamentals win in the long term and and um, hopefully that doesn't cost some of these small investors too much of their money to learn that lesson eventually uh, but but it will happen short squeezes uh, work through the you know relatively quickly so we expect uh, fundamentals to win the day I, I think of amc as an example market cap of amc was 800 million. Uh, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, it's over 30 billion today. So I I think we could all agree that fundamentals of AMC are a little worse today than they were pre-COVID. So a lot of momentum behind these stocks that will eventually reverse itself. Joe? Yeah, there's, you know,
0: there's, um, it's certainly brought in the retail investor and it's it's made the retail investor uh, engaged in the marketplace. Um, and, And so it's something to be aware of, but, I would agree with jason it hasn't changed our philosophy or our approach at all um you know we are dyed-in-the-wool fundamental investors that we're you know we're looking at balance sheets we're looking at uh, earnings track records and, and we're looking at companies that uh, have strong corporate governance and, and those things really will not change uh, just because we have an environment here where you have some dislocations in the market uh, you have, uh, you know, momentum shifts, herd mentality that are, that are really taking over for certain stocks. And the best guidance that I could give to anyone is, is to uh, approach th- these types of investments, these meme stocks, just as you would a casino, because um, you got to be prepared to lose everything you're investing in these stocks. They're not backed by fundamentals. Um, uh, the management uh, is, it, it, for many of these companies is changing. And uh, when you look at the actual thesis, if you try to explain the investment thesis of these companies, it's really hard to convince um, uh, someone that uh, these companies have a, a bright future uh, and one that's brighter than, than their past. Um, so, you know, unless you see something radically changing in those industries that, that perhaps, uh, can't be seen by others. Um, you know, I, I would advise most investors to steer clear of those types of investment prospects.
3: Jason, you mentioned the late 90s. I think the only difference is now we have social media that's kind of compounding, <laughs> compounding
0: the problem. So,
3: um, I, yeah, we, we have completely stayed away from those as well.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. And building off of this conversation, are there pockets of speculation in the market that are worrisome? I mean, Julie, I know I've talked to you about SPACs before um, and we just talked about meme stocks, but anything else that's sounding the alarm?
3: You know, for us, when I you know, I've been an advisor for a long time, so we've seen a lot of we were I was an advisor in the late 90s, the 2007, 2008 kind of um, uh, financial crisis. The difference now I think is that I don't believe this is the same as 2007 2008 first of all it's not as widespread but also we don't have the leverage that we had in 2000, uh, 2007 2008 so we don't view this in the same in the same way um, you know there are as Joe mentioned there are you need to be look at fundamentals you need to be careful with what you're investing but we don't see this as we see we're long-term investors. We see this as a long investing in the stock market as a long-term play. And as long as you have a well thought out portfolio, you guys are investing for the long haul.
2: We believe the pockets of excess are, are kind of contained. It's, it's not systemic like it was in the great financial crisis or other periods of time, like long-term capital management, where some of these things were tied into the broad economy, tied into the broad markets, very contained. They will likely reverse and it'll be a bit ugly. Uh, for those invested in those segments of SPACs or meme stocks or spec tech or whatever the case may be but unlikely to kind of have contagion to other areas of the market
0: i would mostly agree with 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 everything that's been said there uh are not new they've been around for a while Uh, the issue is that a lot of investors don't understand what they are Um, you know there's this there's bill ackman's SPAC now which is now a spark uh, and so, you know, for, for many of these uh, investors who are getting into these investments, they can be difficult to understand. Uh, there's a stepwise process for investing in these sorts of entities. And so there's some concern there that, you know, again, that these, are, these are complex investments and, and they're not appropriate for everyone. Um, but I, I believe that, that pockets of speculation are always going to exist in markets. It's the market's job to shake those out. And it's, it's really our jobs um, as RIAs to, to, to be prudent about investing in those versus
1: not. Mm-hmm. And what is the unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus that we've seen mean for future market returns?
2: Well, it's had a direct impact on asset prices. I mean, we had the sh- shortest correction and recovery of all time in the market, um, accompanied by the shortest uh, recession. Uh, most likely when it's dated here as well. So it, it had the impact of kind of just hitting the market and hitting the economy in a, in a quick way to reverse and normalize things very quickly, but it's created a lot of excess liquidity. that's finding its way into asset prices and making valuations uh, quite expensive. So uh, again, we've talked about diversified portfolios here in here a bit, but we just wanna make sure we have a uh, broad allocation to safe asset classes as well. Uh, Even fixed income, the much maligned fixed income market can serve a role in here when the market is elevated to this level uh, and unlikely to see the Fed raising rates for some time based on some of that inflation commentary that we've already talked about.
3: The only thing I would add to that is on the uh, fiscal stimulus side, I think when we have this much fiscal stimulus, you've got to expect tax increases. That's just, that will happen. Um, Now, does that mean you should do anything different with your portfolio? Uh, No, not necessarily. So, but I, th- I think that as as advisors, we have prepared our clients to expect that you're going to see tax increases moving forward. And if there's something we need to do with the portfolio, we certainly will do that, realizing gains at a lower rate or whatever it might be. But you have to anticipate that moving forward.
0: Yeah, it, it's um, you know, it's it's. I've heard you know, may, some investors describe this market as a convictionless market. With and, and so without the Fed's intervention and without this unprecedented fiscal stimulus where would the market be and where would it be going is a question. Uh, But, you know, what to do about it is really the important question. And you have to stay invested. You have to stay diversified. Uh, uh, Julie's right. This fiscal stimulus will soon turn into a fiscal drag. Uh, The stimulus will end. The taxes will increase. And so uh, you need to be prepared for that. So it's, it's certainly um, pro- provided some cushion for the markets now and will continue. I mean, there's, the money supply is so high. Uh, there's just a lot of money chasing a lot of different assets. Um, and, I, and I think that will provide a bid for equities, especially with interest rates where they are now, continuing to stay low for at least the foreseeable near future. Um, but beyond you know 22, 23 and beyond, that's an open question.
2: And we didn't mention stimulus in the first question about inflation, but should have. I mean, certainly something impacting that transitory pressure on inflation right now. But on the other side of that, uh, as Joe mentioned, uh, a disinflationary impact of kind of a fiscal drag uh, going forward as we reverse some of this and maybe pay for it with taxes.
1: Mm -hmm. And before we move on to REA industry trends, I want to talk about how low interest rates are one of the many factors fueling the housing market. I mean, Home prices have been on fire across the country. Are you getting a lot of questions from clients about this?
2: About low interest rates and and uh, even the negative return of bonds so far this year, you often see uh, we had a pretty sharp adjustment um, in, in fixed income in the first quarter. It's really been quite flat since or even uh, rates down a little bit since then and the income of bonds will, will eat into that negative price impulse of the first quarter over the, over the coming quarters. Um, but with, with a Fed likely on hold, when you think about Fed policy and what the Fed signaled here uh, recently in terms of recognizing some of the inflationary pressure and what it might mean for policy, they're likely to announce a tapering of quantitative easing here late summer, early fall but that will set the stage for likely a year, uh, maybe even more of quantitative tapering uh, before they raise rates. So you you have the long end of the yield curve really anchored to kind of the Fed's terminal rate of, of low twos, two and a half percent, and the short end unlikely to move quickly um, for, for a number of quarters, if not a year, with Fed policy uh, eventually taking in late 22 or early 23.
3: And I'll just say from an advisor perspective, the questions we're getting from clients um, are very different from what we got in 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008. And I'm happy about that. Questions we're getting now are around or were previously around, should I refinance my house? Uh, you know, that, that that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think people remember what happened uh, 10 or 15 years ago very clearly. Back in 2007, 2008, we were getting questions about, you know, should I, gosh, money is so cheap, should I just go buy a condo in Florida or something like that. And two years from now, I'll sell it for twice what I bought it for. We are not getting any of those questions at this point. In fact, we're having people put off purchase like that because they feel like the prices are escalated now beyond where they will be in a couple of years. So I think that people learned lessons back in 2007, 2008, and even though money is still cheap, they're making much better financial decisions around that.
0: Yeah. The housing market is is certainly uh, booming and uh, you know, uh, Certainly supply is having a hard time keeping up with demand. I think a lot of the questions that we're receiving is, um, you know, just frustration related that uh, folks are being outbid in certain markets for houses. And um, it's just in in some pockets of the country, it really has gotten, uh, gotten pretty crazy. Uh, But, but I would agree, you know, a lot of folks are refinancing. A lot of our clients are are trying to refinance and making a smart decision to refinance from what, you know, historic, re- relatively, we're already historically low interest rates down to even lower uh, interest rates, which is great. It's, it's um, a great opportunity for a lot of folks. Um, but, but certainly, you know, the housing market, um, you know, we've gotten some, some equity related questions there as well. It's, it's uh, you know, you, the housing market is one of those industries that is cyclical, that follows these sort of longer term boom and bust cycles. And right now it's, it continues to boom. Uh, so certainly a lot, a lot of opportunity there in, in, in the equities.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm talking to all of you right now from uh, various parts around the around the country. Do you think virtual meetings with clients are here to stay? I know, thankfully, you probably are able to meet in person with some of your clients, but are you getting people requesting virtual meetings? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just say
3: in terms of client meetings, actually we are just this month beginning client meetings in the office. I know different, different firms are handling this in different ways, but this for us is happening just this month. We stopped meeting with clients last March, as did most advisors. I've, I've been amazed at how well the Zoom meetings have gone, uh, not just with existing clients, uh, you know, and, and actually older clients have really taken to the technology, uh, which has been terrific. I also we've also been able to continue with our business development activities, meet with prospects, bring them on 100 percent virtually. We've done all of that. So I think moving forward, there will always be a segment of the population that wants to that wants to meet in, uh, in person face to face. They just appreciate that. But we are thinking that we will probably have a large segment of our client base that will continue to meet virtually just because it is so convenient and because I happen to live in a city where the traffic is terrible and people would just, there's just really no place we can put our office that would make everybody happy. So I think that will, that's going to be a trend that will continue into the future.
0: Yeah, I would have to agree. It's It's been, you know, the, the, the advent of, of zoom technology, or I guess the acceleration of, of its adoption has been, um, has been great. And it's, it's providing a forcing function for, for us to decide, um, is this meeting necessary? And should it be in person or should it be virtual? And I think that's a good thing uh, because it's saving us time and and we're we're being more productive and more efficient and we're being more respectful of clients' time. And certainly there are conversations that you you need to have in person and and will always be best to have in person. Um, But I would agree, You know, we've been able to connect with folks um, in various parts of the country fast and efficiently. And we'll continue to do that. Uh, we are beginning more in-person meetings now as more folks are vaccinated and more comfortable doing so. But I think it's great to have this technology to be able to connect not just with clients, but also with colleagues and with companies and to be able to do it really easily and, and um, without too much hassle. So it's it's been really, uh, re- really nice to have for our business over the past year.
2: Yeah, we're really getting a, a sense of pent-up demand for in-person meetings. It, it seems like our clients got vaccinated in the spring and late spring, early summer. Man, our conference rooms are full and and uh, we're just meeting away. But uh, I, I agree with what's been said about um, video conferencing being an augment to in-person meetings. Uh, no replacement for face-to-face meetings for sure. But finding that clients like kind of those intermediary touches between face-to-face meetings. And it tends to be kind of shorter one agenda item, kind of a deep dive on one topic, kind of to augment those those regular comprehensive reviews or sit downs. So uh, I, I think it's been value added. and we have clients in 49 states, so uh, to your point, Joe, about efficiency and and clients are considering, hey, don't don't it's not worth you coming out here. We don't have that much new to talk about. man that's a that's a blessing. It saves us a lot of time and energy uh, traveling around the country for sure. so that's that's advantageous.
1: Another industry trend is M&A. Julie, I know this is something that you just experienced firsthand being acquired by Mercer. Could you share a little bit more about that?
3: Uh, yes, that was obviously a big decision on our part. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Atlanta Financial and uh, my co-founder Kathy Miller and I founded the firm in 1992, so almost 30 years. And we uh, had a terrific run, really enjoyed uh, operating in the RIA space um, and uh, you know, frankly being entrepreneurs and owning our firm. As we uh, moved forward, we saw trends happening in the industry. Uh, Last year, we were closing in on a billion dollars of assets under management. And when you look at where the industry is moving, we we see the industry kind of becoming bifurcated. So you have these very large firms that offer a lot of services to their clients. They offer tax planning and trust services and estate planning, all kinds of things like that. And then you have smaller firms that I would call maybe the mom and pops firms. They usually, many times a solo advisor, four or 500 million. If you're in that middle space um, and you guys are both CIOs, so your firms have been through this, uh, to get over that hump, you need to make some significant investments if you wanna be able to offer all the services that the larger firms are offering. So you need a CIO, you need a CEO, you probably need a chief marketing officer or something like that. So there's a huge, capital investment. So you can do that on your own and build that, which we had done for uh, 20 years, 30 years actually, or you can merge with a a larger firm that already has all those things in place. So that was the option that we decided to follow. um, And we've been very happy with that decision, but we do see it as a situation where you either build it or you join it. But those are kind of the, those are the really the two pathways you can follow if you want your firm to continue to prosper.
2: We've seen the aggregators very aggressive in the multi-billion dollar segment. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been kind of surprised there hasn't been more consolidation of the, the mom and pops, the smaller sub $1 billion advisors uh, expect a lot of consolidation in that area over time, but it it doesn't get the con- attention of the aggregators because it can't move the needle uh, on them. They're looking for larger acquisitions. For us, we've done uh, a little bit, we've, we've acquired some small firms over the past 10 to 20 years um more more one to two advisor kind of lift outs than than full acquisitions. And right now we've looked at a few uh, opportunities in the last couple of years. The uh, valuations are are extreme. I, I commend you, Julie, you probably got a really good valuation. Um, <laughs>
3: the, the valuations the the- yeah, have right. the valuations are sort of like sort of like the stock market. The valuations <laughs> are very high right now. And so you, you really right. have to that's part of your that's part of your calculus. Um, but you're right, I am surprised that there have not been more sub billion dollar firms um, move in this direction. I think it's very difficult just on a personal level as an advisor and independent advisor for 30 years to make that decision. Um, but you really have to think about what's gonna be best for your clients, what's gonna be best for your staff, your younger advisors, that kind of thing, and decide Are you, you know, how are you gonna best accomplish all those objectives. I think, and I think you'll see more of this in the coming months and years.
0: I would agree. There's been a spate of of recent interest. Uh, uh, you know, our firm, at Salem, is we manage about 2.3 billion in, in assets, and so we've had conversations with with larger groups. We've had conversations, to Jason's point, uh, with sort of the one to two advisor lift. That's something that we've uh, been considering uh, quite often over the, over the past few years. I would say it's picked up. Uh, a little bit recently but but you're right it's a really tough decision and it takes a lot of conversations it takes a lot of consideration i think it does come back to who you're who are you serving and how do you serve them best uh who are your clients and do you have the technological uh apparatus to serve them um if you you know if you are content at reaching a certain asset center management threshold Great, but if you want to go beyond that, you're going to need greater technologies, you're, you're going to need greater human capital, um, greater expertise. And so um, it's a really tough question, sort of a, an existential question that I think a lot of REAs face right now is just, you know, what to do. I do think it comes down to, you, you know, you, you need to build it and that's going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of effort or you need to join it? And that, of course, um, in some ways is a tougher question because you're talking about uh, you know, joining a new culture and, and, and really changing a lot, not only with the way that you work and interact with your colleagues, but with how your clients are served.
1: And as we wrap up this panel discussion, I wanna end on two other trends, technology and ESG investing. Let's start with ESG. It's been around for a while, but we've really seen tremendous growth Uh, What's changed and how are you prioritizing it with your investment committees? It's
0: always been a criteria criteria that we use um, as we're vetting companies. Um, You know, ESG, it's important to understand what ESG means because uh, in, in many ways, ESG, if you look at a lot of the ESG ETFs or a lot of the investment vehicles that exist, um, you'll see companies like Microsoft in there, companies that you wouldn't normally think of as an ESG type of firm, but in many ways do fit the criteria of having good uh, you know, corporate governance. Uh, they're doing a lot of social good. Um, you're doing a lot of environmental good. You're mitigating their environmental impact. Uh, I think that it's something that our clients have asked a lot about uh, over the past few years uh, and have asked about the companies in their portfolio and want to know you know, is this part of you know our investment thesis? I alluded to some of our thematic investing in the beginning, uh, and it's something that we're looking at more closely. Looking at different types of trends in clean energy and renewable energy, uh, and really, you know, there's a lot of different ways to kind of slice and dice ESG type companies and their role in your portfolio. Uh, and for us, you know, it's it's always been something that we think is important to consider. It's something that we we absolutely look at with each and every company that we invest in. Um, But what we try to do is just really kind of boil down what it actually means. Um, You know, if you're just investing in in, an ESG ETF, you might not be investing in ESG in the way that you want to or the way that you think you are.
2: Yeah, I would say for us, it's been a a bigger thrust on the institutional side of our business. We're getting a lot of inquiries from public clients, higher education clients and really what's important to them from a values perspective can vary so there's a lot of different definitions of esg and what what matters to different entities so we have a quality investing approach so a lot of those quality characteristics tend to lend themselves uh very well to an esg screen there's a lot of a lot of parity there in terms of what companies kind of shake out and and which don't um, that that have a quality orientation so by doing that, we can we can take the values of the entity or the, the nonprofit that's looking to engage with us, uh, apply their value system to our our approach and, and determine whether or not we can provide that customized solution for them. Uh, oftentimes we finally can because of our orientation to quality.
3: I'll, I'll just say from a client standpoint, clients are asking, individual clients are asking much more for these kinds of investments. And to your point, Jason, uh, many times when you look at this, Companies, when you use that quality screen, those are the companies that pop up anyway. There's some anecdotal evidence that actually these ESG strategies actually outperform, but that really maybe doesn't have to do with the fact that they're ESG. It just has to do with the fact that they're high-quality companies and they're and they're uh, performing well and doing, doing what they should be doing as corporate citizens.
1: Mm-hmm. And how about technology? How has technology impacted the way that you invest and manage clients?
2: not much in terms of the investment approach it just it, it it adds access to more and more information there's there's more information than you could ever want on on uh, any company or investment so screening that out filtering that out and and allowing our analysts to to have the data they need to make the best investment decisions possible is is paramount but in our mind there's no replacement for that relationship of of trust and counsel and expertise with with an advisor we call them portfolio managers that work with clients Um, But technology is an augmentation to that relationship. So whether it's a client portal or or a way to exchange documents securely via a digital vault, um, that kind of augments that personal relationship. And um, we're investing as aggressively in kind of behind the scenes technology uh, to make sure we're as efficient as we can be in the organization so that our people have more and more time and are freed up from a productivity perspective to spend more time with clients that that's equally important in our mind.
3: And and we've done a lot of that as well. So a couple of things that we've automated our scheduling process, a client can go online. They can see what my schedule looks like. They can schedule. We don't have to have somebody doing that for us and clients love that they can do it at 10 o'clock at night. They don't have to do it between nine and five. Um, We've done things like uh, targeting our communications so that if something comes up and we know what particular group of clients is, is interested in that particular topic we can push it out really quickly just to that group of clients so those kinds of things really allow our staff to be very efficient and allow us i think to provide a much better client
0: experience oh sorry really quickly i would just say that we you know invested in, in new reporting capabilities and portfolio management capabilities and, and it's just saved us a ton of time and enabled us to um sort of graduate to the problem that Jason talked about, which is having uh, too much information <laughs> to make uh, you know, investment decisions and, and sort of that analysis paralysis um, uh, issue, uh, which, which of course is a good problem to have. It's always good to have uh, good data and good information, but figuring out what to do with it. We have more time for that. Um, now that we've invested a little bit more in our reporting and, and, and client interface capabilities.
1: Yeah, a good problem to have, but nevertheless, a problem, which is why you you need technology sometimes. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you for tuning in to Meet the RA. Be sure to visit AssetTV.com, your source for financial news and information, and to check out our other additional episodes of Meet the RA.